university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and I would like to apologize in advance today, listeners. As you can tell in my voice, if you're a longtime listener to the show, I am fighting a little bit of strep throat. I am almost over it. I'm at the tail end of it, but it still is wrecking my voice quite a bit, so I shall do my best today. On the line with me is Dr. Kyle Contour making his return to the show. Dr. Contour is an instructor in the communication department at the University of Colorado, Denver. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Good to be back. Thanks. It's funny you say you have strep. I'm actually getting out of a cold myself. So this is <laughs> Wonderful be a, news for a, our a, listeners a today. <laughs> annoying thing to listen to, I think. But we'll do our best. We we will do the best that we can. Colorado, for those of you who are not from Colorado, the Colorado weather has been out of control. We're talking 40 degree temperature changes in the same day sometimes. So those of us who have sinuses, just in general, uh, we've had problems. <laughs> yeah. No, literally it was like high of 60 to 10 below within about a 24 hour period. Yeah. So. Been good there we times. go. Yeah. So today on the show, Kyle and I are going to be talking about this. I hesitate to call it a new phenomenon. It's been around for a while, but it really has taken off in the last few years here. And that is the concept of reaction videos. Videos of people reacting to a variety of things. There's been this sort of YouTube explosion of these in the last few years. And sort of academically, I think many of us are curious about why. So I am an aficionado of reaction videos. And I also noticed my kids like to watch reaction videos, especially sort of the challenge videos of try not to laugh and that kind of stuff, which we'll, we'll get into for a minute. Should we start by laying down some sort of history of people reacting to watching other people react to stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a good place to start. Where does this come from in the first place? Right. So let's just lay some basic groundwork of reacting to people, reacting to things is as old as mediated visual communication, which is to say that the whole point of watching anything uh, that has characters in it is to empathize with what the characters are going through. I think there's an aspect of that that's still going on. First of all, let's be clear about what we mean by empathy, because, uh, you know, obviously it's the ability to understand and feel the feelings of somebody who you see who is feeling feelings, which is a big thing for most people who have some form of autism have difficulty with that. That's the most signature aspect of, of people with autism is they have difficulty with empathy. But it's important here, I think, to lay some groundwork for what empathy kind of does. There are multiple dimensions of empathy. 
first let's talk about cognitive empathy. So that's being able to understand and identify with someone who's in an emotional state. And that's the thing that people with uh, severe autism have the most trouble with, understanding when something somebody's having emotions and what those emotions are. So, But that can include real people or the plight of fictional characters. So sometimes researchers will talk about this and include a category called fictional wandering, which is where you're not just empathizing with fictional characters, you can also put yourself in a fictional situation that you have never experienced and feel emotional states of what that might be like. And I think the common consensus is it's not as intense as a real emotion in, in real life, but nonetheless, you feel it. Then we have emotional empathy, which has different kinds of sort of subcategories. So you have empathetic concern is when you, the phrase is to feel someone's pain. So you get emotional over their suffering or distress. Empathetic distress is when you feel afraid while watching a horror movie, for example. So you're able to put yourself in a situation and feel the emotional state of that character based on that situation. So that's the empathetic response that people have to watching horror movies. They get scared when there's no real reason for them to other than what they're seeing a character go through. Because they're not in any actual danger themselves. Right. And even though we know this, it can trigger that empathetic response. And then the empathy lingers when we sort of imagine terrors for ourselves after the movie's over. And let's see, that's basically sums up these different axes or dimensions of empathy. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that in the literature, there's more of a focus on things like pain and suffering than anything else. But that isn't to say that that's the only thing. We Terror and pain and suffering are obviously very impactful, but you can feel empathetic joy or you can feel empathetic relief or any number of other things. For example, you can feel empathetic joy at a wedding. Yes. You're not getting married, but someone you know is getting married and having this significant emotional experience and you are having a parallel emotional experience for them. Right. And we experience that for, you know, if you've been to a wedding where somebody who is getting married is, is close to you, you've probably experienced that. And it's worth noting that there are wedding reaction videos of strangers, but you watch people crying or you watch the, the best man cry or you watch the father of the bride cry. Those are pretty common things. And we sort of get swept up in the emotion of that. This is my wife every weekend watching a marathon of Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> right. This is a common trope in reality TV. The so-called reality television, a lot of that is an investment in the empathetic response we have to people being in the situations they find themselves in. And sometimes it's empathetic rage that is is reacting to injustices that are are uh, happen to various people on there. We talked last season myself and, and Tracy Beeler talked about true crime mm -hmm. and why we like true crime. Part of that, I think, is that empathetic rage, that need for justice on behalf of a completely different family that we don't know who had a loved one taken away from them through murder. And I think as you guys discussed, and as I've discussed just randomly with other people, part of the appeal of True crime also is the empathy with the victim of the vicarious fear and disgust of uh, having your life in the hands of another person who intends to harm you and what that's like. So it's not necessarily, I, you know, I think some people are cynical about 
true crime are like, oh, you just like to sort of indulge in the gory details. Well, the reason people do that is, I think, mostly for the empathetic aspect and not because they're putting themselves in the position of, you know, the detective showing up and be like, oh, cool, there's lots of blood here. Look at the brain over here. You're like, that's not what they're doing, right? <laughs> Some of it is the puzzle aspect mm-hmm. of it, the problem solving or thinking through trying to figure out who done it. Right. But a lot of it really is the empathetic part of either empathy on the fa- on the part of the victim or empathy on the part of the victim's family, or in some cases even empathy on the part of the accused, particularly if they didn't do it. Which is why those are the most, I think, sometimes the most compelling, for example, Serial Season 1, where casting doubt on whether... Adnan Syed. Yeah, so it's... it's at, at, for a lot of people, it was empathy for the perpetrator or alleged perpetrator in him maybe not doing it, but almost certainly not getting a fair trial at the same time that people are, are they empathize with the victim, of course, who is this innocent woman. Right. Or Brandon Dassey in Making a Murderer. Right. Who right. is railroaded due to a series of disabilities, and we feel injustice on his part, and therefore there is empathy. Right. All of that is nothing new, right? That's as old as, it's at least as old as cinema. And it probably goes back much further in terms of our ability to do that. And it goes, you know, the reason we have fiction, you know, all these stories are are ultimately about sort of empathy. Well, certainly. I mean, Romeo and Juliet is about empathy. Mm. These, These two poor kids who don't know the other one is faking it. And they both die. And we right, feel that's what makes it a tragedy instead of a comedy. Right? <laughs> right, which it very it's a very fine line. Yes. So, yeah, but, but what I think is interesting about these reaction videos is the relatively new thing of watching people get into that state secondhand, right? So it's people get emotional watching something, and then you get emotional watching them, whatever that emotion might be. And in, in some ways, like the real innovation here is not we, we can talk about the first YouTube videos to really kick this all off. But it goes back a lot further if you think about the Japanese waipu box television stuff going back to clear into the 80s, uh, which is you get a celebrity or some kind of figure in the studio and then they're in a little box off to the side, their faces. And you watch them react to something going on in the sort of main part of the screen. And that's usually, they're usually brought in for prank shows or game shows. And they're supposed to either be shocked or laugh. And that's kind of the appeal. This reminds me of another Japanese show that was really interesting and popular, I don't know, late 2000s, 2009-ish called Gaki no Tsukai, which in the United States was translated to Silent Library. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Now I I remember this. Yes. There's six Japanese guys. They go into this library, and the whole point of the show is there's these cards, and they flip them over, and five of them are blank, and one of them has a skull and crossbones on it. Uh And whoever gets the skull and crossbones has to do a thing... And the other five people have to try not to laugh at him. And it's key that they're in a library because you have to be quiet and not upset other people in the library, which means you can't laugh uproariously. And if you're too loud, you lose the points for that round. Right. And the thing they're being asked to do is something totally inappropriate for a library. Right. You know, like 
getting hit with a baseball bat in the buttocks by a professional baseball player, for example, or, or, you know, something crazy like that. Having to eat a jar of mayonnaise. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Something disgusting, right? Something disgusting or kind of loud or just, you know, inappropriate in a general way. Yeah. And all of us have had this time in our lives where we really want to laugh at something and we're not supposed to laugh. And that makes it funnier. And I, I can't, I don't know why that is. Uh, there's probably scholarship on that that I have not run across myself. It's the same kind of empathy that we have that makes us laugh at home when Jimmy Fallon is ruining every sketch on Saturday Night Live he's ever been in. It, right, right. Because he right. can't not he gets laugh. The giggles. Yes. Which ironically makes the, the sketch better by virtue of him ruining it. You know, one yes. of the most classic sketches of all time. The cowbell sketch uh-huh. is made exponentially funnier by the fact that both Jimmy Fallon and Horatio Sands are barely keeping it together. Uh, same with the Debbie Downer sketch. Right. Which is a pretty mediocre sketch, really, until all the actors lose it with the trombone wah-wahs, and it kind of falls apart. Yes. And we enjoy that at home. Yeah. It's one of my favorite UK phrases. They call it corpsing. Yes, yes. When you laugh right. at a thing that you're not supposed to be laughing at. Right. Like a dead body. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is the implication of calling it corpsing. All these examples are th- reasons like if, if people are asking like, well, why are reaction videos so popular? And my response is like, what are you talking about? We've always had this kind of relationship to things. But now we have a formal thing with a – well, when I say formal, what I mean is that it's become a, an actual genre. As opposed to these other instances we talk about leading up to this, which are things that are kind of accidental and happenstance, and we enjoy it for these particular reasons, but we haven't had a dedicated channel we can go to or like, I'm going to watch somebody react to something, and now I'm going to get pleasure out of that. There's a secondary part of this as well, which is both of us are trained, have our PhDs in media studies. Mm-hmm. Every person with a cell phone and an internet connection is a media producer. Right. right. So 20 years ago, when we had bloggers who were very influential and very important, blogging is just reacting to things as well. Yeah. It's just that we've lost the print blogger to some extent, particularly with social media access and you know everybody doing this running stream of consciousness kind of here's what's happening to me at any given moment plus the loss of places that we would go every day to get people's reactions to things right fewer and fewer people are reading the newspaper which means we have fewer and fewer people reading editorials talking heads on cnn or on fox news are more of a gadfly annoyance now than actual destination where people will go for reactions. So YouTube and Vimeo and all of those media content platforms have become the new place to get other people's opinions on things. Plus, We are a vastly more inherently lazy people right now than we ever have been. And reading is hard and watching a video is not. 
And so those two things sort of coming together makes perfect sense to me as to why these kinds of videos are number one, exploding in number, but number two, exploding in popularity. You know, and that's, that's a great transition to talk about sort of like the two, there's a bunch of subgenres I want to talk about and why it works, but the two big differences between one kind of reaction video and another, one is the pure essence of someone's emotion. And the other is a reaction video where it's more of an analysis and commentary type of video. So here's a thing that happened. I'm going to react to it and tell you what I think, which is what you're getting at. You can say not entirely too cynically that the gadfly stuff on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and so on is really just a puffery, trumped up version of a reaction video that doesn't necessarily have more weight these days than anything else. I mean, and one thing I think that really, really exemplifies this kind of departure from the official reaction of people supposedly who know things, right, is how we have, again, to maybe to put it a little bit cynically, a lot of bloviating on these reactions on the official platforms that people are invited to and they put on a tie versus the Cardi B Instagram video about the government shutdown, where she uses a lot of profanity, but she factually represents a point of view. It's very succinct, and it's basically, apart from some of the profanity she uses, almost the very perfect essence of a political reaction to the shutdown. And what became, I think, really interesting about that is that a lot of people liked it for that reason, but then it became something that caught the notice of a couple of Democratic senators who were debating with each other over Twitter as to whether they were going to retweet it, (laughs) you know. And they're like, hmm, I don't think that we can use this language. But on the other hand, she said everything that I was going to say way better and more succinctly and factually correct than I might have. And then sidetrack, sidetrack from this conversation at least, mm-hmm. then Tommy Lauren, mm. monstrosity, says Cardi B's the new voice of the Democratic Party, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Cardi B says, don't talk to me or I will dog walk you. <laughs> and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez retweets it. Right. So... We have this very, it's a very odd moment, right? In terms of what counts as official and an official reaction has gone completely out the window. And obviously President Trump has even taken the lead on that. Are his tweets his personal reaction? How do you separate that out from the official White House reaction? Is it? Well, and he doesn't want you to. That's explicit in the way that he tweets. He is, he is, and for mostly domestic purposes, he's purposefully blurring that line. Right. But it does become problematic when dealing with foreign relations. And so other countries have to sort of guess, well, what is the official line and what's the stuff he's just sort of putting out there for domestic consumption versus what actual diplomatic policy is going to be. But I don't want the listener to get the impression that the only kind of this type of reaction video has to do with political bloviating. Because there's all kinds of bloviating happening in the exact same way. Uh There's an entire channel on YouTube called the React Channel. Right. Where they just get various groups of people, show them things, and then we watch them watch things and they give their opinions on those things. But it's all kinds of trivial or popular cultural 
or whatever. There's a reaction video of children, little kids, uh-huh. eight, nine, ten years old, where they just give them 1980s technology and just see if they can use it. Right, and have them guess what it might be. And it's fascinating to watch. <laughs> right. They give them a VCR and a videotape and they say, watch this movie. And the kids have no idea what's going on and no idea how to make it operate. Or they give them an old rotary phone and they say, call your mom. And the reason it's fascinating, I think, is it's going on two levels. One is there's a nostalgia slash technological ageism aspect going on, right? These kids are so, for all of their high-minded technology, they don't know how to use anything. Right, right. And also making us feel old for the fact that sometimes these are very articulate, cognizant teenagers who have no idea how to operate technology that to us may not feel that old. But if you actually go through it, was probably not available when they were even born on a wide scale. So yeah, there's those aspects. And then at the same time, the, yeah, the just watching people put together puzzles is an aspect of that, right? Of like, oh yeah, because these things have a particular kind of, it's very simple to use, but if you've never seen it used, you don't know which button to push. You don't know which direction to put the tape in, all of these things. And one of the things I think is fascinating about all of those React videos as well is, as as you mentioned earlier, it's not just the technology. There's also uh, watching kids and adults react to certain memes that circulate. And the implicit understanding of watching them watch that is that the kids are too young to have been caught onto the memes and the, and the adults are too old. And these memes are basically from teenagers to sort of people in their sort of late 20s. And that they're, since they're outside of the target demographic and they may not have seen it already, although sometimes they have, we're trying to figure out, okay, well, does this resonate for them in the same way that it resonates for me as a sort of cool, hip netizen. And I think what's fascinating about that is not only the variance in reactions, but I think it's it's meant to reflect back on the viewer who is, you're supposed to assess whether a meme is actually good and whether it's actually funny or whether you just like it because you understand it. So there's a kind of insiderism and outsiderism working in parallel when we watch those kids react clips. I think there's also the aspect of, so one of the ones that I've been watching lately is they've always had this series of kids react to, and they've Mm -hmm. had this series of elders react to. Right. So they have one with really young people and one with really old people, and they sort of, although I will caveat that by saying all the people in the elders video oftentimes don't look that old to me, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so right right some of them are definitely in the sort of like mid-30s which i'm kind of like oh that's an elder now right which, again there's 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 something being applied there right so there's these two groups but recently they've been doing this thing where they will say do kids know their parents music mm. and then do parents know their kids music mm. mm-hmm. and so i watch this and i watch these kids and their parents play weak mid 90s kinds of songs you know and these kids have never heard never heard nothing they don't know in sync they don't know metallica they don't know whatever popular genre music was happening in the late 80s early 90s they have no idea right and then you get really mad like these kids don't know anything and they're they're t- and then they flip it 
and the parents listen to the kids' music, and it's all, and parents are like, I have no idea what this is. It doesn't even sound like music, and it totally resonates with me uh-huh. in a way that I find I never thought I would be the dad who would walk in the room and be like, turn that crap down, but I find myself doing it all the time. Uh-huh. And I don't, we've always had that. Yes. And see, I take a little bit different approach in that. So first of all, just speaking to your reaction, I think that's exactly what it's supposed to do most of the time. It's supposed to make you feel that you are correct in your taste and your assumptions about the way that popular music works and that the old stuff was always better and the new stuff is crap. Right. And you're right. Right. That's been going on since uh, at least since the early 20th century when there was such a thing as as mass, mass culture. And a sort of, you know, people started to figure out that different genres could appeal to different age groups. But, you know, I, I also I take much more pleasure when the script is flipped, when we see one group or the other genuinely like whatever's being played and they're surprised by it. And they're like, oh, this is really good. I actually like this. And of course, because, you know, I'm an old fart, too. I get more pleasure out of it when it's music that I enjoyed in my youth that the, that now kids today like. But it's also, I think, really fascinating and interesting when sometimes you'll have an adult go like, oh, this is really cool. I like this. And they're, they're quote unquote not supposed to. Right. I mean, I make a lot of fun of music today being terrible because it is. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, there are pockets where I appreciate in sure. ways that I didn't think I would or could, you know? I've talked several times on this program about Sean Mendez, mm-hmm. who is something I shouldn't like, but that kid sings his ass off and he's really good. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Alessia Cara, or weirdly enough, Selena Gomez. I don't know where she turned a corner and started making really good music, but she did. And so we've got this sort of factor of transgressive fandom, which you and I talked about in the first season. Uh-huh this idea that this is not supposed to be for you but if you watch other adults listen to this as well and they also like it it's then you become a part of a club which we love we love being a part of a club right right so the just like me aspect of reaction videos i think can't be overstated i watch people react to a thing so that I feel better about my reactions to the thing. Yes. And I think you get that in particular with my kids really like to watch a series of YouTube videos, uh, mostly by this young woman named Azzy, who is a Canadian Iranian woman living somewhere in Europe at the moment. She's moved around a little bit as her channels gone on, but She's an attractive young woman, I would say in her early 20s, whose whole thing is just, I'm going to watch these memes, basically, or these viral videos. It's usually kind of a mix of both. And I'm going to offer commentary on it. So she'll often, she's often quite judgmental about the people in there, but like not in a necessarily mean way, just sort of like, you shouldn't be doing that, you're dumb. I mean, that does sound very judgmentally mean, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, she's not there just to rag on them. She's actually saying pretty standard, sensible things about how people should or should not be behaving as we accept in society. Right. And so weirdly she's providing this kind of guidance for people like my kids who 
don't have a lot of, if they find that stuff on their own, they have to react based on their own kind of where they're at right now as kids, which hopefully is guided a lot by me, but might not be sometimes. They just have to sort of fumble in the dark for it. And she has, she has this sort of, she provides a kind of a, a guide post for how to respond to some of this stuff that initially you might think is funny, but actually you're looking at somebody getting badly hurt or you're looking at someone who has mental illness or whatever, right? And of course, there's reaction videos that I've run across that are almost the complete opposite, that are finding incredible mirth in other people's pain and other people's suffering and other people's misfortune. And so a lot of those reaction videos where people sort of editorialize memes and viral videos, I think is fascinating from that standpoint of it's based around their kind of personality and people are attracted to certain kinds of personalities for certain different purposes. Hold that thought for a second. Mm -hmm. We'll be back in two and two. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. So, before the break, we were talking about videos in which people operationalize for you how to react to certain things. Right. right. Um, one aspect of that that I think is really interesting, one of the things that I've been watching recently is this video channel called the Try Channel. Huh. The Try Channel is interesting. It used to be called the Facts Channel. F-A-C-T-S, the facts channel, mm -hmm. got changed to the Tri channel. And basically all it is is this small rotating group of Irish people who eat food, mostly American food, uh -huh. although sometimes German, sometimes Australian, but mostly American food, and then react to it. Mm -hmm. There are lots of different channels of people trying different food there's a korean one mm -hmm. there's an american one where they try food from around the world but the tri channel has i believe about five hundred thousand subscribers yeah it's not bad it's pretty good when their videos go up they pretty quickly hit 250 300,000. some of their best videos are about eight and a half million views at this point <laughs> It's usually the ones where they drink alcohol, those are the, where they drink drinks from around the world. Those are the ones that rapidly rise to millions and millions of views. Right. The smaller ones are, you know, they eat these Reese's peanut butter cups, which, by the way, Irish people hate peanut butter, and I don't understand why. And I think that's part of the fascination of watching the channel is trying to right. figure out these things that we love so much, why they hate them. So much. It is fascinating, and I think one of my favorite instances of that is is a particular video where I do believe it's some Korean people, some young Korean people eating southern barbecue, 
Mostly, oh, where they eat the ribs? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple yeah, of different I've seen ones. One. They have some Texas style and they have some Carolina style. I don't think they have any KC style. And they're basically like, here's here's what you would get throughout the South kind of deal and go for it. And it, you're right. I mean, you're right. It's completely fascinating to see what they find completely off-putting in their combination of flavors and what they actually enjoy. And these are not universal reactions to a lot of times there's variance between the people, of course, just with any food. Of course. But yeah, uh, what I think is going on there too is we've all had that experience, right? Of like, oh, here's a thing I'm enjoying. Try the thing I'm enjoying. But usually we only get to do that very seldom. And it's with people we know actually physically with us at a meal. Maybe you get the opportunity to foist all this on a foreign exchange student, for example, or a visiting relative. But the difference is when we tell someone, hey, try this, it's really good, they'll try it. But if you tell someone, this is disgusting, try this, right? they won't. <laughs> but if you watch someone on a video do it, they don't know. Right. So they can't dodge. Like your wife, your cousin, your best friend, whatever, they can dodge it. Also, it's more honest because if they hate it, they will let the interviewer know right away. Whereas if it's a host or a, or a relative, you're always – I've never – I don't know of a single culture where people are not polite to the point of, oh my god, I'm going to throw up, but I'm going to pretend that I enjoy this. I'm going to have some more actually. Right. So I think that authenticity is is part of the reaction. This is disgusting. And I'm going to tell you it's disgusting to your face. Right. And you almost there are different reaction videos where people go out of their way to find disgusting things. And the whole appeal is we get to watch them suffer as they're eating the vomit flavored jelly bean, that kind of thing. And I would argue also that there's almost the kind of inauthenticity creeping into that as well which so by the way this authentic aspect the authenticity um i want to segue into the other genre of things which is i find the most compelling reaction videos which is not somebody reacting to something and telling you something it's literally a pure emotional state that you are watching and how authenticity is a I don't know if it's a requirement, which is, I think, something we can talk about, but it's, it's an aspect of it. So this goes back to like the reaction video. When reaction videos first started to get truly big, I think was around the phenomenon of Two Girls, One Cup, which is one of the most disgusting videos on the internet. And for your listeners, I can't even describe it in a way that's remotely PG, but it involves, it's scatological and you know, it, it involves bodily processes that you don't want to watch. And the whole point of the video as it became a reaction video was it was to trick your friends into watching this video and then you get to watch them be disgusted beyond belief. Uh, and then people would film other people being disgusted, either singularly or in groups. And they become some of the most widely viewed videos on the internet. And I was, you know, I was thinking about this and I started reading about some things regarding it. There was a Sam Anderson in the New York Times had a quote which I really, really liked uh, describing sort of the phenomenon of two girls, one cup. Which is, So he said a couple of different things. One is, the most disgusting and offensive video ever to go viral was ultimately, oddly, a force of togetherness. As in, bringing people together of all different backgrounds and cultures in, in their fundamental disgust. And then the reason he thinks it got popular and it spurred reaction videos of this kind generally is he says that 
In a culture defined by knowingness and ironic distance, genuine surprise is increasingly rare, a spiritual luxury that brings us close to something ancient. Watching a reaction video is a way of vicariously recapturing primary experience. Now, when I think of that, I don't necessarily think about two girls, one cup, but I think about a couple of different sort of categories of reaction video that I think have really kicked this all this stuff in high gear. And there's three of them I'm thinking of. One is, first of all, people filming their friends or relatives watching the Red Wedding from Game of Thrones. Right. I will say I fell down that rabbit hole <laughs> right. pretty hard <laughs> when those videos yes. were big. I, I fell down that rabbit hole pretty hard. I was just watching hours of other people watch a thing that I knew was yep. going to happen, and they didn't. Right. And now that one's interesting because you don't necessarily have to know exactly what happens in Game of Thrones to understand that it's very surprising and very unpleasant for most everybody. All these main characters get suddenly murdered in a setting in which you think everything's going hunky-dory. So people who read the books knew this was about to happen. They filmed people next to them who didn't know that it was about to happen. And I did the same thing. And it's glorious because some people just, they get angry. Some people are just super surprised. And I don't know why exactly, but the very best ones are when people completely break down and they're weeping openly and just bawling of the suddenness and sadness of watching people they care about through fiction getting murdered. I will tell you there are two series that have captured me lately in uh -huh. this genre. One is, and they're related. One is, they're older. He hasn't posted a new one in a while, but there's this guy named Rahat. And Rahat is an illusionist, and he goes through drive throughs at night usually, because it makes mm -hmm. the illusions easier. And he does stuff to the drive-thru workers. <sighs> so, for example, he has this costume, I guess for lack of a better word, this illusionist gag where he orders something at the drive-thru and then he pulls up. And when he pulls up, he is hidden from view because the costume looks like the seat of his car. <laughs> so he drives up and it looks like there's no one in the car, like it's right. an invisible driver. Right. Or he drives up and he has one of those skeleton, those like uh -huh. Halloween skeletons taped to the car seat. Right. So car seat costume. So he pulls up and now it's a skeleton driving or it's a zombie driving or whatever. And you just watch the people in the drive through freak out. Right. Because they don't right. understand what's happening. And what I think is interesting about both of those things is that these are intense emotional reactions that are meant to be funny to us mostly. We empathize to a degree with people experiencing either terror or anguish, but it's hilarious that they're doing that. Right. And I mean, and among the, the earlier reaction videos also is, is people staring at a maze that then becomes like a terrifying face all of a sudden and falling over there in chairs or punching out their screen or just whatever. The video that used to have the you would watch it and then about halfway through the picture from the ring would pop up. Yes. and People would flip out and fall out yes. of their chairs or whatever. So there is that one correlated is this. YouTube channel called Bronze Cowboy. Huh. And it's this guy in Arizona who has this costume that he has made that when he sits on a park bench, it makes him look exactly like a bronze right. statue. Right, okay, yes. And then people come and sit with him 
and then he hugs them and they flip out. Right. And I don't know why it's so, the word I want to use is satisfying. It's so satisfying to watch and I don't understand, I cognitively sort of understand it in that there's a certain amount of joy we always get in schadenfreude, yes. right? In watching someone else's suffering. But it's funny to me, especially the ones that are the funniest to me are the ones where people then laugh uncontrollably when they realize he's a real right. person. When they get scared, that's one thing, but when they get scared and then realize it's their own fault and then can't stop laughing, those are the ones I find the funniest and the most compelling. And what I think is, so that's a perfect example to talk about how I think part of what's happening with these reaction videos is that because it's mediated, there's the extra step it hits multiple dimensions of empathy that usually are only heightened in one or two ways, right? When we watch a horror movie, we only have the sort of one or two of those dimensions going on maximum. Whereas with these reaction videos, it can hit on these other aspects. So as you mentioned, there's, there's the schadenfreude aspect. One, one of my favorite things to do, and I fell down this rabbit hole multiple times, is every time there's been a very like a big play in a big, important NFL game that goes amazingly well for one team and really poorly for the other team. I love to watch those reaction videos from both fans because there's, there's one side that provides the schadenfreude. And the two instances, one of which you're not going to enjoy at all. One is the Minnesota Miracle, watching Saint fans just melt down. Um, <laughs> Seeing as you're a Saints fan, you may not enjoy that as much. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't talk about that video. <laughs> uh, and the other one is in Super Bowl, what was it, forty nine? I think when the Seahawks passed on the goal line and it was intercepted <laughs> by the Patriots. So, and that's yes. a, that's one of the even more extreme ones because the Patriots fans are going from thinking, well, we've lost, to suddenly realizing they're going to win, and the the opposite for the Seattle fans. So. Watching the Schadenfreude is entertaining and satisfying in a weird way if you're if you're focusing on the Seattle fans, but then you also get to kind of experience a vicarious joy for the fans of the winning team. They're so excited that and it's and they're laughing and they're crying and it's contagious to watch that, especially when it's in a larger group. Another example would be when the Buffalo Bills fans are hanging out in their own stadium waiting for the end of the Ravens-Bengals game to see whether they're going to make the playoffs. And they're rooting for the Bengals, and the Bengals miraculously pull off the upset in a last-second touchdown. And so all these Bills fans are going nuts for the other team. But there's a satisfaction of, of a contagious joy and contagious laughter. There's even a whole subreddit devoted to contagious laughter, watching other people laugh. It's famously something that we all react to. And now we get to do it for other people we've never met entirely. And there's a kind of, I think there's a nice kind of global culture, kumbaya kind of aspect to that, where you can watch somebody from anywhere react in those ways, and you get to share in that joy and that laughter in a lot of ways. And what's, I think, interesting about it is I can fire up some of those videos at any time or of day in any, however I'm feeling, and it, it picks me up in that respect. Of like, oh, I just got an easy laugh off of somebody else laughing. The vicarious nature of mm -hmm. empathy, bringing us back full circle. The vicarious nature of empathy, this idea that 
you can have an experience without having to have the experience appeals to our very nature as human beings. I think. Yes. Something that media scholars and neuroscientists can work together on is what kind of empathy is that exactly? Are we, do you understand these people as real people who we are next to, or are they characters? And I don't think it's entirely clear <laughs> how the mediation affects that, which is why I want to get into something. There's a specific type of reaction video that I think is really fascinating that problematizes the way we can talk about these as being just sort of something we enjoy, which is, to me, the most emblematic in reactions to the Force Awakens trailer when it first came out. And mm. I want to say it this way, which is that lots of people fired up the trailer and had really emotional reactions to it because it's like, oh my God, this is the original trilogy cast and it looks cool. And you know, there's a, this emotional attachment to Star Wars and nostalgia for a lot of people. So, but what I think is interesting is that there are endless videos you can find of people, you're just watching that emotional reaction to the trailer. And I have to admit, like, I found it very satisfying to watch. And there's, you can watch compilations where they compare people's reactions to that. Hands go in the air, people cry. Like, it's, sometimes it can be quite intense. And, you know, there's, there's a few people who are, like, really cynical about this. They think it's incredibly stupid that anyone would film themselves reacting to a trailer, first of all. And then that we would watch that. Who would watch that thing? And, you know, and one of the people I came across that Whitney Siebel writing uh, for Mandatory said, by filming yourself having an honest reaction, you are suddenly, by the very virtue of being observed, lending an air of disingenuousness to your reaction. And I think that this that's fascinating on two levels, which is one, just basically the cynicism of, okay, people get excited about seeing Chewbacca and Han Solo back in the Falcon again. What does it say about us that we react emotionally to people reacting emotionally to that. That's a, that's a whole other kettle of fish, according to Siebold. But then there's the, the aspect of like, does something count? If How much does authenticity matter in a reaction video? Which gets back to things like kids, parents filming their kids reacting to the end of Empire Strikes Back. Do the kids, is their jaw dropping and their sudden thing is has that been coerced or is that genuine and how does that change how you feel about watching that because some people like to watch a video like that because like ah, i remember when oh spoiler alert luke found out darth vader was his father <laughs> right that hit me hard and wow that was cool and i like to see that happen to these kids and other people are like ah eh, it didn't happen to these kids dad made him react that way so it doesn't mean anything so the authenticity aspect i think is an important part of that and then we have where if you are watching somebody react emotionally to a trailer, which you are also moved by, and you're sharing that experience kind of, and you're getting worked up by somebody else's reaction as well. I mean, at the end of the day, you're watching an advertisement and you're sort of being kind of swept up into what is at the end of the day still a corporate property. And I'm sure they love the fact that not only is the trailer out, but there's 10 times that many videos about people reacting basically positively to that trailer. And the thing that, again, the vicarious nature of it is we have all watched a trailer for something we were really excited right. about and had a reaction to that. 
and have shared that reaction. Right. Yeah, yeah. You would go with your friends. Have you seen that? Have you seen it? <laughs> Particularly if you're sitting in the movie theater, for example. Yes. Particularly as you're sitting in the movie theater. That you know, this just happened this week. We went to the movies, we were sitting there, oh, it's time to watch the trailers or whatever. Trailer comes up for a film that my daughter is really excited to see, and she right. literally reaches over and grabs my arm. She reaches over and grabs my arm and sinks her little fingernails into my arm because she's mm-hmm. so excited that the trailer is out. We've all had that. So pretending as though it's weird to watch other people have that reaction, for me, is one of those things that people do when they don't want to admit that they Kinda, enjoy that's something. That's my reaction to Siebold's article as well. It's like, I don't think it's that weird. I think it's maybe it's a little indulgent because you can just fall down a rabbit hole uh, over and over and have this experience. And it's sort of like emotional crack of that authentic, organic, physical experience you had with your daughter in the movie theater can be replicated with complete strangers of your communal excitement over something. And communal excitement is, again, not a new phenomenon. It's, one, for example, one kind of reaction video that I enjoy that Jimmy Fallon has actually capitalized on quite a bit is Jimmy Fallon takes celebrities dresses them up and then takes them into the New York subway and has them sing. Uh He's done it with Maroon 5. He's done it with Christina Aguilera where he puts them in disguise and then has them go into a normal setting and do their thing and people walk past them and throw money in their, you know, guitar case or whatever Uh without knowing Uh it's the real person. Until they amass a big enough crowd that he then has this big reveal. There's a really great video of the cast of the Broadway show of The Lion King is on the subway on their way to rehearsal. And they just spontaneously, quote unquote, begin performing the opening song to The Lion King, which every (laughs) human being who's ever seen it knows exactly what song I'm talking about. Now imagine you're on your way to work. And the Broadway cast of The Lion King Mm -hmm. starts singing that in your subway car. And the interesting part is, yes, it's cool to listen to the music because it's beautiful. But watching the other people have that experience, there is this empathetic, vicarious joy that you get from someone else getting to have that live experience. It's a positive version of a candid camera prank. That's all that really is. It's just candid camera, but it's not mean or uncomfortable. It's the opposite. Along those same lines, you you mentioned earlier about the the theater experience. The whole reason you go to the theater, the actual cinema, is to watch it with other people and have a communal reaction to the movie. Otherwise, and theaters have, have struggled with this, the whole point is to jack up the experience because I don't particularly like sitting in a an area where the screen is actually a little too large most of the time and it's a little too loud and I'm paying a crap load of money to be there. And other people are eating popcorn behind me and making me want to kill them. Yeah, and so part of that communal experience can be very negative of other people ruining the movie in that respect. But you know, the opposite is true as well. Like, you know, when you're in a movie theater where something happens and everybody cheers, everybody laughs, you know, that's that's part of the appeal. And there's a reaction videos to that too. Uh, the ones I've gotten into recently are, are audiences react. And it's just this person who goes into 
usually it's opening night with all the other nerds of a major, like usually it's Marvel films, but he's got a few other ones up because those people are almost guaranteed to have the biggest reactions. So basically then it's just an edited version of the movie in audio at least. And later once that he can get around the copyright issues, some of it in video as well. And he syncs that up with the audience reaction. And there's even, I saw a compilation where it had world reaction to Thor's arrival in Wakanda, which is this moment in Avengers Infinity War when Thor comes down in the middle of this battle and save everybody's bacon. And he's like a complete badass. And it's really compelling to watch because you start out with the American audience who has this sort of like, woo, you know, and then there's in maybe 20 different languages with various subtitles, Thor's arrival, that moment in all these different theaters worldwide. So what I think is fascinating about that is it's trying to just replicate that audience experience. Like, oh, did you go watch Spider-Man Homecoming in a crappy, empty theater? Well, now you can watch it with a full house of opening night nerds. Let's fix that for you. I discuss this with my students all the time about why watching a horror movie at home sucks. Boring. Watching a a horror movie is not nearly as scary at home as it is in a theater with a lot of other people because you can't feel the tension of other people, the actual yes. physical tension yes. of other people's fear in your living room. There's an appeal to that, which is why we go to the movies and don't just hit it uh, you know, on Blu-ray by yourself. So I think we've probably hit that point where, at the end of the day, reaction videos, so what? So what? So they are providing a way of experiencing things we already have experienced or can experience anyway, but in something that's immediately accessible and you can indulge in it as long and as deep as you like. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think is kind of up in the air, but it that's what it's providing for people is something we have always wanted and always enjoyed, but now we can do it, like I said, as much as we want to. I think that's my ultimate takeaway. And then just adding to that, building on something I mentioned earlier, it's going to be up to researchers to figure out what it means that this extra level of mediation, um, I would argue, crosses more of those axes of empathy than you would get in sort of so-called real life. Although, you know, have to see whether that's really the case. I think feeling other people having feelings is a thing, Uh number one, we as human beings have always done. Number two is a thing that more people should spend time doing. (laughs) Right. In order to better relate to other people's humanity. And also provides us with an opportunity to validate our own feelings through the feelings of somebody else, which I think is also valuable. I don't think reaction videos are anything mysterious. I don't think there's a mystery behind why people like them so much. They are the natural extension of our empathetic selves. Yeah. Using them as a way to either augment your own empathy for other people or to augment your own intense reactions to media you've already seen. So this would be like the Game of Thrones kind of stuff where you like you watch Game of Thrones 
Then you go watch a reaction video of somebody else watching Game of Thrones. And it's a confirmation of, of things you were feeling, usually. That's probably largely a good thing. I mean, you can be cynical about sort of our, our relationship with corporate media, but at the end of the day, I feel like that's just being cynical about media in general <laughs> and not admitting that it makes us feel emotional. And that's why we like it. And that's okay. <laughs> and that's okay. Well, dear listener, we've reached the end of another episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. For Dr. Kyle Contour, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This has been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for hanging out, Kyle. Yeah, no problem. It's always a pleasure. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a good rest of your day. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.